Acts. Let us hear from God's Word. Uh, Tonight I'll be reading from Exodus, chapter 19, verses 1 to 25. That's Exodus, chapter 19, verses 1 to 25. I'm reading from the NIV. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said, and the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready for the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, Be careful that you do not go up the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on him. Whether man or animal, he shall not be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they go up the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. He said to the people, Prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was a thunder and lightning, with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke, because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called to Moses, the top of the mountain. 
called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people, so they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up the Mount Sinai, because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain, and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, Go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Thanks, Gareth. Hello, everybody. Now and ask him. In the year 1215, uh, English noblemen were dissatisfied with King John's rule. He was a tyrant. He was a despot and a dictator. And so they very cautiously suggested a written agreement between the king's people and the king, um, which would prevent royal bullying and dictatorship. That document is a very profound moment in history. It's called the Magna Carta. And it was kind of the first example in the West of any kind of constitution. And it really was the, is the bedrock of modern-day democracy and constitutional democracy. It was the first document which embodied the transition of an age of traditional rights and rule, like a king and a queen, to an age of written legislation, like what we have in our own country and is around the Western world. In the preface to the Magna Carta, um, they proceeded to expound the Ten Commandments as the basis of that document, of that contract between the king and his subjects. It's an amazing thing that the Ten Commandments are central, really, to how the West has grown and risen. The Ten Commandments is there in the foundation, though many would deny it today. Many have forgotten that today. Some scholars have said that the Ten Commandments are as important to the Old Testament as the cross of Christ is to the New Testament. It is a fundamental part of the Bible. Few sentences in the world have had such an enormous impact on civilization, such as the Ten Commandments. So fundamental is the impact that our society is built on them. And we don't even notice them anymore. We just assume, because they're so obviously true and right, we just assume that everybody thinks like that. Everybody agrees with the Ten Commandments. We don't even notice them anymore. And we don't see the significance of what has happened. And so we take for granted the enormity of what happened in Exodus 19 and 20, those thousands of years ago, because what happened on that day is still with us in our society today. Though our society is turning its back on God and on the Bible, nevertheless, its roots are in what was read for us a moment ago by Gareth and the following chapter as well. The Ten Commandments, are there any law students here tonight? Hands up, a few of you guys. The Ten Commandments lie behind some of the great features in modern law that we take for granted, like fair trial. 
comes from the Ten Commandments. Innocent until proven guilty, Ten Commandments. The rule of law, Ten Commandments. Due process, equality under the law. All of those good things that keep a society from imploding and folding in on itself. The fact that the law is above the rulers of a country is actually the Bible's idea. It's God's idea. And it's found first in the Ten Commandments. How many of them do you know, I wonder? Should we get somebody to recite them for us? Because, I mean, surely it's such a fundamental part of our civilization. We all know them off by heart, don't we? And in order. No? Well, that's a shame. My hope is that we'll change that uh, over the next few weeks. Today, we're just doing an introductory sermon to the Ten Commandments, and next week we'll go for the first one, and we'll manage to get through nine of them this term, depending on your exam schedule, I guess. So let me make three points about the Ten Commandments, about God's law, that uh, we need to understand in order to rightly understand the Ten Commandments. Number one, God's law has got a context. God's law has a context. Very important. The Ten Commandments don't just drop out of nowhere. They actually come in an historical context, some of which we saw last term, if you were with us, as we worked through the first part of the book of Exodus. In the ancient Near East, where the Ten Commandments were given, when one nation invaded or conquered another nation, there would be various options open to the conquering nation. For example, option A, they could go in and obliterate the conquered nation, wipe them out completely, take all of their assets, occupy their land, and that happened often in the ancient Near East. Uh, I wonder if that's maybe Putin's objective in um, Ukraine. But another option was that they could sometimes, what they would do is they would go in, it was quite a clever way of doing it, they would invade their enemy, and then they would kidnap all of the upper classes, all of the aristocracy, all of the intelligentsia, all of the opinion makers, the influences of that society. They would be kidnapped and taken back to the conquering nation and re-educated, which left the conquered nation without leadership and so open to being ruled and governed by the conquerors. It was a clever way of doing it. And actually, there's an example in the Bible of that in the book of Daniel when Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon goes in and takes Daniel and his three friends back to Babylon and re-educates them. But there was a third option that was open to the conquering nations of the ancient Near East. They could enter into something that is called a suzerainty treaty. Now don't panic. The word suzerain means conqueror and vassal means conquered. So if country A invaded country B, country A, if country A was successful, they would be the suzerain and country B would be the vassal, the conquered nation. And so it's come to be known in history and in archaeology as the suzerainty treaty. And lots of these treaties have been found written down uh, when archaeology digs have taken place. It was a legal and a binding document or contract between the winners and the losers. The agreement required the winners to be faithful to the agreement and the losers to trust the winners and also to obey the document. It was about people entering into agreement with each other. 
It was done with a set of words that described their relationship now that they are a conquered nation or the conquering nation. It contained promises of the future. If you obey us, then we will do this for you. If you disobey us, then this is what will happen to you. It was a binding obligation and a contract between two groups of people. There were four parts to the suzerainty treaty. Part one was something about the past, an historical prologue to the agreement. This is what happened. This is what we did. We conquered you on such and such a date. And then secondly, there was something about the present. This is how we're going to live together as these two nations. This is the rules that we're going to abide by. And then thirdly, something about the future. This is what will happen if the agreement is broken by either party. And then the fourth part of the treaty was a ceremony, a ratification ceremony, where both sides signed the document and bound themselves to it. Now the Ten Commandments are structured as a suzerainty treaty between God, the suzerain, and Israel, the vassal of God, the conquered nation of God. And so have a look at 19, chapter 19 of Exodus and verses four, uh, verse 3 and 4. Here is a reminder of the past, part one of the treaty. While um, the Lord called Moses to him out of the mountain, saying, this is what you shall say to the house of Jacob, that is to Israel, tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That's something about the past. I rescued you. You know that. You saw that. That happened on a day in history. Second part is chapter 20 and verses 1 to 17, which we're going to dive into next week. Chapter 20, verses 1 to 17, this is how we're going to live together. In this case, it's the Ten Commandments. And then chapter 21, 22, and 23 is all about the future, blessings and curses. If you obey, then this is what you have to look forward to. If you disobey, this is what will happen. And then in chapter 24, verse 7 and 8, it will be on the screen. Here is the ratification ceremony of the treaty. He took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. That's the Ten Commandments. They responded, we'll do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. That's the ratification ceremony. Everybody's agreed. This is how we're going to live going forward. So that is Israel's constitution. That's their Magna Carta, the Ten Commandments. And so that's the context of God's law. Secondly, God's law is based on covenant. God's law is based on covenant. I want us to look again at chapter 19 and verse 4, where two things have happened according to God in the past. Two very important things for us to take note of. Number one, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Can you see the two things? I did something to Egypt and I did something to you. I rescued you from something, but I also rescued you for myself, for relationship with me. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
These are the words you ought to speak to the Israelites. Two things. I've rescued you from slavery. I judged Egypt. I carried you on eagles' wings. Any Tolkien nerds in the room? Remember the great eagles of Mamre? That Tolkien got it from here. The by the Old Testament is full of eagles rescuing people. Psalm 103. Go and read it. You'll see eagles there as well. But secondly, I rescued you from slavery, but I've rescued you for relationship with me. And uh, verse 5 actually uses the word covenant to describe the agreement between God and his people. It's a very beautiful picture, actually. Although the whole earth is mine, I could have chosen anybody. I put my love on you. You are my treasure. I want you. I brought you to myself. Imagine, it's exactly the words you need to hear when you're standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, aren't they? Just imagine how utterly terrifying Sinai was. Worse than any volcano you can imagine. A cloud with trumpets blasting. I take it it was angels who were playing trumpets. And, a, and, and darkness and lightning and thunder. And this great warning, don't come near the mountain or you will die. Don't let your animals come near the mountain because they also will die. How terrifying it was to have approached God. He, he really was unapproachable and terrifying. And the Israelites actually go, you know, Moses, you go and talk to him. We don't want to go near that. We're terrified of that. And then to hear these words, you know what? You are my treasure. I brought you to myself. And so verse 5 and 6 defines what it will mean for Israel to be the Lord's people. They are his treasured possession. They are a priestly kingdom. Treasured possession is something valued and loved, something protected, uh, something that, is, that means something to you. That's a treasure. A priestly kingdom, you're a signpost to God, for that's what the priests were meant to be. They were go-betweens between people and God. There is a whole nation of priests that when the nations living around Israel looked at Israel, they should have gone, wow, how good to have their God. Priestly kingdom. And then a holy nation. They were an advert for God, a signpost to God. Holy like God. They live the good life when they obey God's ways. What an amazing thing that the great God who owns the earth, who smashes his enemies and enters into close relationship with people by bringing them to himself. And you know, the New Testament picks up on this verse and actually applies it to Christians directly. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 on the screen. It says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, same words, a holy nation, God's special possession, treasure, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. How wonderful that the God that we approach now through the Lord Jesus Christ is not terrifying anymore. He's safe now because of all that Jesus has done. But we too are called to be a royal priesthood and a holy nation as we demonstrate to the world that we are God's special possession. Covenant relationship, agreement between two parties. 
You know, from the idea of covenant, we get the idea of the rule of law. One of the basic pillars of modern civilization comes from this passage. Here is an agreement between a group of recently rescued slaves and the living God. A contract not between two equals, because God is God. He is the one who has rescued the slaves. He is the one who has set the terms, therefore, of the covenant. And do you know that the covenant is binding even on God? That is remarkable. You know, the rulers of the ancient world, nothing was binding on them. The dictators and the despots, the monsters of the ancient world, they don't place themselves under the law. They always put themselves above the law. That's the definition of a dictator, of a monster. The law doesn't apply to them, but God the great King of kings, the Lord of lords, the ruler of rulers, places himself under his own word and binds himself to a contract with a group of ex-slaves. None of the gods or the rulers of the ancient world ever did this. None of them did anything like make a covenant with their people. They were unpredictable. They were capricious. They were fickle. They did what they liked. If Baal the Canaanite god of fertility, felt like giving you a good harvest, then he would. If he didn't feel like it, well, tough luck. If the god Moloch wanted your child for a human sacrifice, he would take it and required you to throw your living child into a fire. How extraordinary. What brutality that is. And if Allah doesn't feel like sending you to heaven on the day that you die, then he doesn't. doesn't matter how you lived or what you did for him in your life. Unpredictable. Unfaithful. And of course, Pharaoh, who they've just been rescued from, a notorious dictator who wanted to murder babies and who lived above the law. But God is different. The God of the Bible puts himself under his own law, he is not another Pharaoh or Baal or Molech or Allah. The first time in the world's history that a king puts paper or puts words on a, on a stone, in this case, not paper, the rule of law that even he will abide by. Can you see that God can be trusted? The God of the, of the Bible is a trustworthy, faithful dependable, predictable God. He binds himself to his own word. You can always know what God thinks. You can always know what God will do because he tells you what he'll do and he always does what he says he'll do. He's faithful, unlike the masses who live under the whimsical, selfish, and unpredictable rulers in Israel's day. God's people live good lives because they are free. This is what true freedom is. Living under a predictable ruler. You know this is the boundary there, that's the boundary there, that's the boundary there. Within those boundaries, I'm free. With a dictator, you never know. The boundaries are always moving. And you know, this is why the Bible often talks about a marriage in terms of this kind of relationship and covenant. 
This is what marriage is meant to be. Sadly, it often isn't like this. But it's what it's meant to be. This is God's ideal for marriage. A binding agreement between two people for life based on faithfulness. Moses is like a marriage broker between God and the Israelites. And the people are willing to accept this great proposal. And so Exodus 19 and verse 8, the people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. You're right. That lasts five minutes if you read on. But Moses brings the answer back to the Lord. That is their stated aim and intention. You know, friends, all of us have got a longing to be loved like this. Do we not? This is the kind of relationship we're made for, one that is based on faithfulness and promise. It's a relationship of grace. It's not a relationship that requires you to perform all the time in order to be loved and accepted. That's the problem with living together. You've heard me say this many times, and you'll hear me say it many times again. When you live together, when a couple lives together, they are always, without exception, insecure. And they are insecure because they, they, there's no commitment or covenant or agreement. And so what the couple are doing is they are auditioning for the role of husband or wife. And if you've ever auditioned for anything in life, you'll know how insecure you are until you get the part. I wonder if he's going to ever ask me to be his wife. I wonder if she'll ever accept my proposal. Insecurity is built into a relationship of living together, but not marriage as it should be. Marriage as it should be is based on commitment and therefore on grace. The marriage commitment says, come hell or high water, for better or for worse, I'm not going anywhere. Now, friends, let me just be clear about this. Um, there are exceptions to that in the Bible. And so we mustn't absolutize that. But what I'm trying to illustrate to you is the fact that deep down, that is what we long for. We long for somebody to love us, come hell or high water. And that is what is happening here between God and the Israelites. And it is what happens between God and us on the day that we come to the Lord Jesus Christ. We enter into covenant with God, into relationship with Him, into agreement with Him, such that we can be sure that He is gracious towards us. We don't have to jump through hoops. We don't have to be on a treadmill of performance with God. He has seen us at our worst, and He still wants us and loves us as His treasure, as His special possession to be with Him. Here's the third point. God's law is not the gospel. Now, there is a good chance that I'm going to fail tonight as a preacher. Because it doesn't matter how many times I say that it is not so, there is always going to be somebody in the room tonight who thinks that in order to be acceptable to God, you have to obey the Ten Commandments. So I'm going to labor the point because I don't want to fail as a preacher, and I want to make sure that everybody is clear that that's not how this works. For many in our world today think that one of the great myths of Christianity is that you have to be a good person in order to be acceptable to God. 
You have to be a law keeper. You have to obey the Ten Commandments, and then God will accept you. Can I say that that is never, ever what the Bible teaches? And if that is what you've thought up until this point, you've got a wrong understanding of Christianity. For it is not what the Bible says. Um, look at verse 4 again of chapter 19. It's such a beautiful verse. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That, when did that happen? After they obeyed the Ten Commandments? No. Before. They didn't even know that the Ten Commandments were coming at that stage. God just saved them. They were unimpressive. They were a bunch of peasants and slaves grumbling against God without any hope or light for the future. Unimpressive group of people. And God decided to put his love on them. And only after that does he say, here are the Ten Commandments. And so it's very, very important, friends, that we understand this. Israel are already God's treasured possession before he gives them the Ten Commandments. As far back as chapter 4 in the book of Exodus, God calls Israel his firstborn son. And so it's not obey the Ten Commandments and I will have you as my treasured possession. It is, I love you. I have brought you to myself. You are my people and my treasure. Now obey me. The order of that is of critical importance. Even the Ten Commandments themselves have got this fact embedded in them. Have a look at chapter 20, if you have the Bible open on your phone. God spoke all these words, verse 1, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You have been saved and rescued. Now obey. It's not obey and I will rescue you. Can we be clear about that? Um, you know, there is a very big grouping of Christians in the world today who teach obedience leads to salvation. It's called the Roman Catholic Church. That is what they teach. The Roman Catholic Church says, obey God and you will be accepted. But it is not what the Bible teaches. And it is such a profoundly important thing that I've labored the point now for about seven minutes. Have you got it? Even though morality is an important thing, it won't save you. Morality didn't get them out of slavery. Morality won't get you into heaven. That wasn't even how Moses understood the Ten Commandments. Look at this quote from Deuteronomy, which is, um, Moses is still alive. He's about 120, and he's on his deathbed. And these, the book of Deuteronomy is three recorded speeches of Moses, his deathbed speeches. But look at what he says to the Israelites. He understood this clearly. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. You were the fewest of all peoples. It was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh. Now, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is, sorry, know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. 
Even Moses was clear about this. Why are Israel saved? Is it that they were more special? Is it that they were more impressive? Is it that they were more moral? No. If that was the case, <clears throat> then we could get into heaven by being good. Think with me for a moment. If you could get into heaven just by being good, by obeying the Ten Commandments, what on earth did God send Jesus to endure hell on the cross for if there was an easier way of doing it? In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus said, Please, Father, Daddy, Abba, please, will you take this from me? And God keeps quiet. Can you imagine what a monster God would be if there was actually an easier way than the death of Jesus? There is no other way besides the death of Jesus to get into heaven. It's not about obeying the Ten Commandments. And so Israel was saved because of God's promise, because of God's love, because of God's faithfulness, not because of anything in Israel. No performance. Thank God that we don't have to attain a moral standard before he will save us. Would you get in? I know I wouldn't. And so what is the motivation then to obey God or to obey the Ten Commandments or to be moral for Christians? The answer is not fear that if we don't, we'll go to hell, because that fear has already been removed from us. We're saved. We're going to heaven. The motivation is deep thankfulness and gratitude that we have been saved. And so now I really want to be God's man. I really want to be the person that God says I am. I really want to live my life in response to what God has done. But I want you to understand something really important about this. The rescue of God is grace. But you know, the giving of a moral code, the Ten Commandments, is also grace. For societies that obey the Ten Commandments are societies that enjoy the good life. Societies that have had the Ten Commandments written into their constitutions, into their foundations, are the most successful and prosperous societies in the history of the world. It is a grace of God to give the Ten Commandments to any society, to any of us. Do you know, in my job, I've spent many hours with men in their late 60s who committed adultery in their lives who thought at the time it was wonderful and exciting and fun. And they get into their mid and their late 60s, and they realize what an absolute disaster it was to be an adulterer. It might be that there's an adulterer here tonight. Can I remind you that that sin is completely forgivable because of the death of Jesus? But you yourself will know the damage and the disaster that adultery causes. It's not the good life to be a multiple adulterer or an unrepentant adulterer. Your children hate you. Your reputation gets trashed. It leads to trouble and disaster and brokenness, not to mention your conscience late at night, the loss and the regret. No, the good life is obedience to God's Ten Commandments. When you look back on a faithful marriage after decades at your old wife or your old husband who you have loved faithfully, where there is dignity and where there is respect and where there is trust. That is the good life. 
know if I should say this, but now I'll have to say it because I said that. You know, sociology, always behind the Bible, always playing catch-up to the Bible, has discovered that the people in the world today who are having the best sex are people who have been faithfully married for decades. Old people, old wrinkled prunes. <laughs> they are having the best sex. Isn't that astonishing? Do you know, now please hear, okay, settle down. I don't know how we're ever going to get back to the Bible after that. Let me explain to you what's going on there. Notice I didn't say they're having the most sex, but they are having the most fulfilling sex because it's the person that they've been faithful to for decades. And there is a fulfillment and an intimacy that the player who's having sex with different people every weekend will never have, will never experience. They might get more sex, but it'll be meaningless and fruitless sex. And so God's way actually is the good life. And if you obey it, you will look back on your life. Even if you're not a Christian, living a moral life is better for you than living an immoral life. And so God rescues us, rescued the Israelites from Pharaoh, and rescues us from sin through Jesus. Grace, that's grace. And then he says, now live my way, and you will find that that is the good life, grace. So what is the relevance of the Ten Commandments to us today? Here it is. When you read God's law, when we read the Ten Commandments, and if you're honest with yourself, and if you understand the Ten Commandments, which is my job over the next few weeks to help you understand them, then you will groan when you hear them because you will realize that you have broken them. Those who were on uh, Equip last week, you know this from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus picks up the law and expands it. And he shows that actually if you've lusted after somebody on the inside of your head, you've broken the seventh commandment. Now, that means all of us. We are commandment breakers. So we read the Ten Commandments and we groan. We say, God, help us. We've not lived your way. And then... What the law does, according to Paul in Galatians, is it drives us to Jesus, the one who has kept the Ten Commandments perfectly. And he says, do you know what? I'm going to do two things for you. I'm going to die for you to forgive your commandment breaking, but I'm also going to live for you and credit my obedience to the Ten Commandments to your account. Now I know you're not a charismatic church because you ought to have said amen at the top of your voices after that. The law convicts me and drives me to Jesus. And Jesus cures me and drives me back to the law. He says, I've forgiven you and I've accredited your account with my obedience, but go and obey the law because it's good. It's gracious. And so that's how the Ten Commandments fit into our lives today. He forgives us and cleanses us for not keeping the law. 
and then sends us back to God's standard. And even that is done with grace. It's all grace. It's dripping with grace. Look at Titus chapter 2 and verse 11 on the screen. The grace of God has appeared that offers what? Salvation. God has saved us by grace. But then, verse 12, it, that is the grace, teaches us to say no to what? Ungodliness, law-breaking, immorality. Can you see, I need God's grace to save me. Verse 11, I need God's grace to help me to obey him. Verse 12, it's all the grace of God. Undeserved kindness. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. We need God's grace to save us, friends, but we also need God's grace to live godly lives. Sean, do we have time? It's a bit late. Should I just pray and then we can sing? I'll be very happy to talk to you one-on-one -on -one afterwards. I think we're out of time for Q&A tonight. If you're new, we normally do a Q&A after the sermon. My bad tonight. We'll leave more room next week for it. Let's